All right, well, we want to continue tonight our study of the Apostle Paul and his life, and this whole year is dedicated really to the men around Paul, but before we can talk about the men around Paul, uh, we need to talk about Paul himself. We need to establish that, that center point uh, of this unique man whom God used tremendously to spread the gospel around the world. And if you feel like last, last lesson last week was like drinking out of a fire hydrant, well, this week will be the same as well. We'll have to go through this material really fast. Uh, the life of Paul is an incredible life, and there's so many different details. But I have to summarize the second half of his life tonight, his life as a believer, his life as a Christian but then as we go through the rest of our series, looking at the different men that Paul has around him, that God puts around Paul, we will come back to Paul's life every evening throughout the rest of the study and establish a little bit more information about Paul. So we're not going to be done uh, talking about him tonight, but our major focus on him will be done tonight. All of you should have a, have a handout, and uh, we'll send this to you by email as well, as well as the slides. You're going to see information on these slides that you don't get in the handout, and I will send you that as a PDF copy as well, so you can have that and, and go over that on your own. Well, as I said, tonight we're going to look at the second half of Paul's life, and actually it splits up pretty much as halves. Uh, what you find with Paul is, is he becomes a believer, he's saved on the Damascus Road, around the age of maybe 33, maybe a few years younger, maybe a few years older than that. And he's, as we're going to see tonight, he lives to about the age of, of 65. So we can take Paul's life and we can split it into these two halves, his early life and his, his efforts as a Pharisee, as one zealously committed to the traditions of his ancestors, and then this amazing Damascus Road experience that we discussed last week splits that life and then everything after for the next three decades is devoted to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's begin, first of all, by talking about Paul and his new mission. Last week, we talked at the end about his conversion. Let me just go back to, uh, to that for just a few moments to set our tone for tonight. As one scholar said, he said that the Paul that we meet in the Bible is two different persons. The first Paul is the young, learned Pharisee who most likely collaborated in the rest of and certainly the approval of and assisted in the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. The second Paul is almost unrecognizable from the first. The post-Damascus Paul is a man motivated by love who teaches that the grace of God is at the heart of the gospel he preached. The contrast between the two Pauls is nothing less than astonishing. Who can explain how the hate-filled, raging persecutor became a love-filled apostle of grace and mercy? So when we look at Paul's life, as I said, his birth is 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 best estimated to somewhere between the age, between the years of of 5 BC and 85 it's most likely that it's around or closer to 85 now he's he would be a little bit younger than the the person of, of of Jesus the historical person of Jesus his birth is probably around 6 
B.C. Paul would have been a little bit younger than that. But that's our best guess at his age, somewhere between those, those years. We also know from church history that Paul was martyred under Nero or by Nero at around the age or around the, the year of A.D. 66. So Paul would have been roughly in his mid-60s when he was, when he was put to death. His conversion appears right in the middle, around the year AD 33, and we're pretty confident in that. And, and if we had a, a whole year just to study Paul, we could get into the, all the details for that. But there are clues to this in Scripture, particularly in the book of Galatians and Acts. His conversion happens right in the middle of the life that God would give him on this earth. And they are indeed two different, very, very different halves. In fact, what we could say is, is this. When we talk about the Apostle Paul, he summed up what happened to him on the Damascus Road very well when he wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. This really summarizes what we know of Paul's conversion account there on the road to Damascus. What he says elsewhere about it is so well summarized in these words. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. On that Damascus road, as Paul was headed as a persecutor of the church, the church to Damascus, Paul goes as one who is spiritually blind, not seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But there on the Damascus road, a light that is brighter than the noonday sun, the light of the glory of the resurrected Jesus, appears to Paul. And Paul is there reduced to a worm, so to speak. And he, is, he comes face to face with his Lord. And there he sees for the first time, spiritually, light shines out of darkness. And after that, Paul's life is different. You can summarize his life really in terms of this. From that point on, Paul's motto in life is Christ in me and I in Christ. So for example, he says in Galatians 2 verse 20, he said, I've been crucified with Christ, referring to that new life that he had received on the Damascus road. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live. You see, before his conversion, Paul was, was characterized by the I. It was Paul who lived. It was Paul's righteousness, his self-righteousness, and all his accomplishments and his status. But now, it is no longer Paul who lives, but Christ lives in Paul. And the life, he continues to say, which I now, I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Or in 2 Corinthians 5.17, where Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So for Paul, when we think of Paul, we think of these two great phrases which Paul is best known for. I in Christ and Christ in me. Christ in me and I in Christ. It was all about his union with Jesus Christ. And what Christ had done for him. And what is amazing to consider 
is that this new life is joined together with a new mission. Paul received there on the Damascus Road not just eternal life, not just forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ, but there on the Damascus Road, as Paul repeatedly states, he received a new mission. Before his mission was to was to persecute the church. Now his mission was to preach the very message that he had previously hated. And what is amazing to consider here is the kind of commission that is given to the Apostle Paul. It's well summarized in the Lord's words to Ananias, that first believer who had come across Paul's path, the first believer that would interact with Paul after his conversion. The man's name was Ananias and God sent Ananias to heal Paul's physical blindness. He was physically blinded by the glory of the resurrected Jesus. And notice the nature of this commission. The Lord said to Ananias, go. Ananias understandably was afraid. This Paul was the one who was on his way to Damascus to arrest those who professed faith in Jesus and bring them back to Jerusalem, possibly to kill them. And God said, Ananias, you go and you heal him. Ananias says, wait a minute, he kills Christians, and this is what God says to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And what's amazing here is this phrase, to the Gentiles. Remember, Paul had been a Pharisee. His, his upbringing as a Pharisee meant that he stayed as far away as possible from the Gentiles. They were unclean. He would never eat with them. He would never associate with them. In fact, he would denigrate them constantly. They were lower than, they, than the low. They were not of the same level, the same status, the same privilege as the Jewish people. But now this Pharisee, being converted on the road to Damascus, is now sent to the Gentiles. We see that Paul took this this seriously. And what's amazing to see in the Apostle Paul is that he loses no time. The same zeal that marked him as a a zealous persecutor of the church and and one who pursued his ancestral traditions now turns that zeal towards the preaching of Jesus Christ. And we see, first of all, this immediate zealous obedience to preach Christ happens right there in Damascus. Within days of receiving his sight, he begins to preach. We read this in his testimony that he says says later to Agrippa. He says, so King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedience, disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first. So he began to preach there immediately in Damascus that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus, the historical person, is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And then we find that within weeks of his ministry in Damascus, he he engages on his first missionary endeavor. We often call his trip to Galatia his first missionary journey. But Paul was preaching Christ even before then. And we read that he goes into Arabia what is sometimes called the Nabataean kingdom, which would have been south of, south of Damascus. In fact, you've probably seen this picture. This is a picture of Petra on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. Petra was the capital city of the Nabataean kingdom, the, the kingdom of Arabia. 
And we read in Galatia, Galatians that Paul went away to Arabia and for the better part of three years ministers in Arabia preaching the gospel there. That ministry in Arabia forces him to flee back to Damascus as the king of, of, of Arabia, the king of the Nabataeans, his name is Eratus, pursues Paul to Damascus and demands that that city hand Paul over to him, undoubtedly because Paul had been preaching in his, his territory and Paul escapes, as you remember, through a hole in the wall at night and is, then goes to Jerusalem. So we can trace Paul's Paul's early movements as follows. First, we see him preaching Christ immediately in Damascus. Then he heads south into the region of Arabia and for, like I said, the better part of three years, ministers there, returns to Damascus once more because of the persecution that, that, that erupts after his ministry there and then has to flee Damascus for Jerusalem. And we read that he spends... Around two weeks, 15 days in Jerusalem, not very long, with the explicit purpose of getting to know the the key apostles of the Jerusalem church. But there too, persecution threatens him and Paul is forced to leave Jerusalem. And what's amazing to think is that Jerusalem, that, that city where he was trained as a Pharisee, now becomes a place that will be a constant threat of persecution of his own life. And just imagine if you were the Apostle Paul, you had left Jerusalem three years previous as a Pharisee. And now just imagine what it would have been like to come back to Jerusalem as a believer, knowing that your Lord and Savior had been crucified outside the city gates for your sin. Paul spends just that short amount of time in Jerusalem, and then he heads up to Tarsus. The believers quickly send him up to his homeland, his home region, because he is threatened by the Jews in Jerusalem. So we read that he was sent to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and he was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea. He'd only been there two weeks. And what's interesting to note is that Paul now is going to spend a lot of time in Tarsus. He's going to spend a lot of time in Cilicia, and these are called Paul's silent years. Not a lot of people know this, But when you study the the scriptures and look at all the details, you find that Paul spends about eight years in Tarsus. And we don't know anything that he was doing other than some brief comments that he was preaching Christ and planting churches. But Luke doesn't give us an indication of the extent of that ministry, only that he was preaching Christ. And then what we have happen, as you know, A Gentile church, a purely Gentile church, the first Gentile church in church history springs up in a city in Syria called Antioch. And because of the preaching of some some traveling Jews who preached in in Antioch, a church springs up and, and, and Gentiles get saved and the church is Gentile. And the Jerusalem church hears about it and sends Barnabas and says, Barnabas, Go and find what's going on in Antioch. We don't know. This church has just sprung up. And Barnabas goes there and he sees the grace of God and he remembers something. He remembers that he had met in Jerusalem eight years previous a man by the name of 
Paul or Saul who said that he had been chosen as an apostle to the Gentiles. And we read that Barnabas goes to Tarsus and looks for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And now Luke picks up the the narrative as Antioch becomes the center of Paul's ministry there. And so if we look at Paul's second half of his life, his conversion to his martyrdom, we we find that he spends three years from his conversion to that first Jerusalem visit, three years in Damascus, Arabia, and Damascus. Three years there. Then he goes to Jerusalem. And then he is sent up to Tarsus. And we don't see him coming back until he arrives in Antioch. And we can tell from Luke's narrative that that would have been around the year eighty forty four. So we see this era of Paul's life in Tarsus, eight years of ministry. But they're silent. We just don't know much about it. But what we do know begins with his ministry in Antioch. And that's where I want to now pick up and go quickly through the next steps. As he's there in Antioch, we find the first deliberate effort by a church to send out a missionary team. And that's why we call it Paul's first missionary journey. We read that while they, that is Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Paul were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to them and to the other leaders there, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them Away And what begins there in Acts chapter 13, around the year of A.D. 47, was, is, is what we call the first missionary journey of Barnabas and Paul. And I want you to notice something that's interesting in, in the text. Up until what we're going to see in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, it's always Barnabas and Paul or Barnabas and Saul. We see that even in this text of Acts 13, verse 3, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. And the ordering of the names is important. It shows that initially Barnabas was the leader of the missionary team. He was the leader of that missionary endeavor. But a transition occurs in Acts 13, verse 13. They had just finished their missionary service in the island of Cyprus, where they go first. And as they conclude that missionary service in Cyprus, having evangelized there, There's a transition that takes place in verse 13 of Acts 13, where we read this. Now, Paul and his companions, or literally, those around Paul. By this time, Paul had established himself as the leader. And a transition takes place that Paul now steps up into leadership. And now Barnabas is the one who's considered to be under Paul's gravitational pull. They minister in Cyprus. They minister in in Galatia. They minister a little bit in Pamphylia, these Roman provinces, and then head back to Antioch. This would have taken maximum two years. We read then of the second missionary journey of Paul that begins roughly in AD 50, where we find that Paul then is sent out again by the Antioch church, this time not with Barnabas, and we're going to leave that discussion for a different time, but Paul is going to be sent out with Silas. And this time they're going to to go through Galatia, but head all the way to the Roman provinces of modern-day Greece, 
They're going to go all the way through Turkey and end up in the, the Roman province of Macedonia, which includes the cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. They're going to plant churches there. And then they're going to head south to the Roman province of Achaia, where Paul will preach in Athens and in Corinth and spend considerable time in Corinth. This era of Paul's life, this journey is going to take about two years from AD 50 to AD 52. And then Paul is going to head back to Antioch, making a little stop in Jerusalem once again. And then we find him on his third missionary journey, begins in Acts chapter 19, where again he begins in Antioch. And he travels again through Galatia. And this time his focus is on the Roman province of Asia, what we sometimes call Asia Minor, Western Turkey. And this is going to be the longest of Paul's missionary activities in one given place. He's going to spend three years in the very important city of Ephesus. Now, what's important to note about this third missionary journey in particular is this. It was a time of intense difficulty. In all of Paul's writings, if you look at his letters, he describes his time in Asia, his time in Ephesus, as being some of the most difficult of his ministry. He says, for example, to the Corinthians, as he writes to them from Ephesus, he says, For I think God has exhibited us as apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ, weak, without honor, hungry and thirsty, and are poorly clothed, and are roughly treated, and are homeless, reviled, persecuted, slandered, and scum of the world. This third missionary journey is the most difficult for the Apostle Paul. These three years in Ephesus are marked by adversity upon adversity, persecution upon persecution, to the point where Paul describes it later on as saying that he despised of life itself. Yet Paul endured. In fact, that third missionary journey is also perhaps his most fruitful. And that's often the way it is. During those times, men, when we face some of our greatest struggles is also some of the times when we can have the greatest exhibits of faith, where we can experience the greatest fruitfulness of God working in our life. Because when we are weak, then he is strong. And when he is strong in our lives, as he was in the Apostle Paul's life, that is when the fruit of God's work becomes so manifestly different, evident. And so he states of that same time in his ministry, that third missionary journey, he at the same time can say that he has finished his ministry in this this area. And he makes an interesting statement here in Romans. Romans was written at the end of this third missionary journey. And he's already thinking of Spain. And he says that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. You might say, well, what does this, you know, what's the significance of this? These words are very significant. You know where Jerusalem is, and the font there is in dark. I'm sorry, it's not very visible. You know where Jerusalem is there at the southeastern corner of the Mediterranean. Illyricum is where modern-day Albania is. So essentially, what Paul says that he was able to do by that time in his life 
is to take the gospel from Jerusalem all the way, which in a, it would be a thousand miles of direct line, all the way to the end of Macedonia and the border of Illyricum, the border of modern-day Albania. That is a, an amazing accomplishment that God did through this apostle. And if you look at it, this happened in 10 years. Paul, not a lot of people understand this. Paul's three major missionary journeys, what seemed to be an amazing amount of time, really happened within 10 years of his life. He begins his first missionary journey, as I said, in AD 47. But he writes these words that he has preached the gospel and fulfilled his task all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum. He, he states that when he writes Romans at the end of his third missionary journey. And that takes place in AD 56. 10 years he had taken the gospel a thousand miles, not counting all the travels in between. By this time, by foot, he has traveled, and sometimes by boat, he has traveled approximately 7,000 miles, 10 years, all for the sake of the gospel. One writer said this, in little more than 10 years, St. Paul established the church in four provinces of the Roman Empire. Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia. Before AD 47, there was no evidence that there were churches in these provinces. But in AD 57, when Paul writes Romans, Paul could speak as if the work there was done, and he could begin planning extensive tours into the far west, into Spain, without anxiety lest the churches which he had founded might perish in his absence or for want of guidance and support. After this third missionary journey, as you know, very quickly, Paul heads back to Jerusalem. He brings back a gift from the Gentile churches of Greece to the Jerusalem church. He's arrested in Jerusalem by the Jews. And that starts a lengthy period of incarceration beginning around the year AD 57, AD 58. And he spends a couple of years in incarceration in Caesarea, where he gives his, his defense in front of Felix and then Agrippa, and he knows that the proceedings are just stalling because of the pressure of the Jews who want to have his head on a platter. And so Paul realizes, the only thing that I have left open is to appeal to Caesar. He calls upon his right as a Roman citizen and says to Agrippa, I appeal to Caesar. Agrippa has to send him to Rome, and that begins a long journey, as you know, in the end of Acts, Acts 27, 28, a long, dangerous ship ride, a ship journey, all the way to Rome, where he's going to spend another two years under house arrest, awaiting for Nero's pronouncement. Well, in that case, around AD 62, Nero declares that Paul is innocent and releases him into freedom. At that point in around AD 62, Paul begins a fourth missionary journey. It's not included in the book of Acts, but we have evidence of Paul's fourth missionary journey in the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy and then Titus and then, of course, 2 Timothy. Paul spends maximum about three years ministering again in the area uh, of, of the Aegean provinces. So the area of Macedonia, Achaia, Asia, and of course, we know Crete. He helps evangelize the island of Crete. But in AD 67, 
or sorry, AD 65, we know that Paul was put in prison once again, brought to Rome, put under arrest, and there Nero will decide that he must be executed. But at the time of Paul's ministry, at that point in Paul's life, he was ready. By this time, he's traveled probably around 13,000 miles, most of it by foot. He has preached the gospel in many different provinces. And he's able to say this as he comes near to the end of his life, as he writes his last letter to his dear son in the faith, Timothy. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, with the Lord, the righteous judge, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This great man now is at the mercy of Nero. Nero will, according to church history, will take off his head. But as I said last time, the impact between these two different people could hardly be different. No one names their progeny Nero today. But many name their sons Paul in honor of the Apostle Paul. One was the emperor. The other one was a slave of Christ. And their impact on the world is diametrically different. Now, as we close tonight, I just want to focus on one more thing to set the stage for what we're going to start talking about next week. Some have the tendency to think that Paul perhaps accomplished what he did, traveling these 13,000 miles and preaching the gospel in five or six or seven different Roman provinces. Some will think that he did this single-handedly, that he was by himself, that he's this lone ranger. And and sometimes we will look at Paul and say, that's who I need to be, that lone ranger that'll just go on his own and get things done. Well, that's not the Paul that we read of in the New Testament. Indeed, when Paul was converted, he had one friend, a very hesitant one at that, Ananias. That's it. No one else. But by the time Paul writes 2 Timothy at the end of his life, we find a list of names, both men and women, of about a hundred names that Paul refers to as people who are dear to him. People don't often see that. That Paul, over time, did not become more independent, but became more and more dependent as he continued to minister the gospel. And so, when we think of the Apostle Paul, we must understand that as he began and as he continued and as he served to the end, his ministry philosophy is best defined as a collaborative effort. He was not a lone ranger. He was always a team player. In fact, what we can see is we look at these names that are around Paul. As one scholar said, the personalities that gather around the figure of Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, constitute one of the most significant groups of human history. Not a lot of people realize this, but when we look at Paul's Magna Carta, the book of Romans, right? Book of Romans, his greatest doctrinal treatise. One entire chapter of that great book that comprises 16 chapters. One entire chapter, chapter 16, 
is made up of references to names. That's all it is. As Paul works through name after name after name, and as he greets them, and as he shares warm words of affection towards them, and it gives us insight into the, Paul, into the heart of Paul that he was a human being, that he was a man, that he had the capacity to develop relationships, and that he valued the people who worked with him. He didn't just use men. No, he cared for them. He didn't just use them for his own purposes, but rather he attracted to himself as a real man, men of all kinds of diverse backgrounds, men like the slave owner Philemon and the slave Onesimus. Men like the, the Jew Timothy and the Gentile Titus. Men like the great prophet Silas and the great preacher Apollos. And men like Aquila, the leather worker. He is a man who has the capacity to draw men to himself as a true friend. In fact, of Romans 16, one scholar said this, the emotional strength especially which pulses in these names was one of the magical charms wielded by Paul, the leader of men. You see, as we hold up the Apostle Paul as an example to follow, we must also hold up the fact that he was a relationship builder. He needed those around him. He loved those around him. One writer said this, he believed and knew from personal experience that the saving work of Christ found its richest and fullest expression, not in isolation, but in the Christian community held together by mutual love, grounded in a common love for Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. And men, we must see this when we look at the Apostle Paul. In light of all of his accomplishments, as a preacher of the gospel, an integral part of what made Paul a great leader and a great man was his ability to forge friendships, his ability to build relationships. And I want to emphasize that as we move forward, that's what we're going to look at, at the Apostle Paul as a, as a man who makes friends, as a man who, like a magnet, attracts iron filings to himself. And that that must be the model that we have for us as men. Men are not called to be independent lone rangers. We're truly in the line of the Apostle Paul. We will be men who long to have friends, who long to establish meaningful, caring relationships as an expression of what the gospel does in breaking down barriers and forming relationships. Let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, as we look at Paul's life in brief tonight, we are amazed by these two things. The extent of influence that you gave to him. The extent to which you used him to bring the gospel thousands of miles into many different provinces. To both Gentiles and Jews, to the, to the slaves and to the emperor himself. Indeed. You called him to give testimony to yourself. You called him to suffer. We're amazed and humbled by these examples. Father, we also see in the example of Paul a heart that is tender, a heart that is affectionate towards others. 
a heart that longs to be in the presence of others, longs to bring others to himself, a heart that recognizes the value of koinonia, the value of fellowship. And we pray, Father, that as we embark on this study now of looking at the men who shaped Paul and who served Paul and, and, and who walked with Paul on these many, many different miles, we pray that you would make us into this kind of man that is capable of drawing others to himself and also capable of serving others for your glory as an expression of the gospel. We pray this, Father, so that you would be glorified, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be glorified in, in our capacity for fellowship, and that you would be glorified in, 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 in the gospel and how the gospel breaks down barriers and allows us to experience true relationships and fellowship at the, at the most deepest levels. Help us, Father, as we study together, we ask this, In Christ's name and by the power of your spirit, amen.